0: St. Louis Alderman Jack Coder has only been on the job a few months, but he's about to handle one of the biggest pieces of legislation in the city's recent history. The Seventh Ward Alderman joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine,
1: eight, eight, seven, six, six, five, five four, four, three, three, two, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair as to I say, say. hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, no,
0: I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague
2: co-host, Joe Manis.
0: And our very special guest for today... Alderman Jack Coder, how are you guys? Oh, uh, we're doing great. I'm especially glad because we have another Chicago suburban native <laughs> in the studio and we can outnumber Joe.
2: Yeah, not somebody from Webster Groves. That's
0: right. It, it's it's an amazing feat and I guess we'll we'll know more about that in about 2 minutes when Joe asks where you went to high school. But before yes. we do that, because we always like to do this when we have aldermen on the show, just kind of explain to our listeners what is the the boundaries of the 7th Ward, which neighborhoods it includes and just more a bit about the area of St. Louis that you represent.
1: Certainly. So um, Seventh Ward, it consists of downtown St. Louis, so basically from Biddle and the riverfront, everything downtown east of Tucker, and then it heads south along the riverfront all the way down through Soulard and Casciusco, uh, covering pretty much all of Soulard, the industrial part of the riverfront, to Sydney Street on the south, and then Lafayette Square, McKinley Heights, and uh, portions of Fox Park and Compton Heights. So So it is geographically the second largest ward in the city.
0: I was going to say, but in years past, I guess the population center would have probably been like Soulard, Fox Park, Lafayette Square. I'm not sure if the inhabited part of downtown is in your ward or is in Tamika Hubbard's ward, but I'm sure that that has more in your ward than in years past.
1: So I have the pretty much the downtown central business district. Okay. Um, So most of the loft district downtown on Washington Avenue is to the west of Tucker Boulevard. And that is not in the seventh ward. Um, But I do. So I would say, yes, so Soulard is the bulk of the residents of the seventh ward.
2: Yeah. And at one point, this goes back a few decades, the sixth ward covered some of the down, was part of the downtown. The seventh was more Soulard and around there. So your district takes in some of the most influential uh, real estate. You mean in... his
0: ward? Yes. We're not. We're not <laughs> yes, state legislators yes, here. Yes. Yes. His ward, ward district. Whatever. His ward.
2: Whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and but but it takes in some of the more influential territory. I mean downtown. It, even, even even a lot of the business leaders who don't live downtown they wield a lot of muscle downtown.
1: That's correct. And, they certainly do. And
2: then of course you know Lafayette Square and the Soulard, which has always been a hopping area. So I'm interested what sort of I mean do you feel like you're dealing with two constituencies those who live within the city and those who work in the city but live outside but who try to influence city policy
1: Oh yeah very much so I mean you know I ha- I deal with your day-to-day general constituent service problems trash potholes everything that folks in Soulard, Lafayette Square LaSalle Park Kinley Heights complain about and rightfully so and so that's a big part of my job but then you know I could spend the second half of my day dealing with the head of Stiefel and issues that they have with infrastructure downtown or the Cardinals or the Blues or the Rams who are all located in the seventh ward so yeah I basically have you know two big constituencies your your residents and uh your business community downtown
0: so hence I'm glad you mentioned the Rams we'll be talking a lot more about that in <laughs> the next few minutes. In few minutes but just tell us a little bit about yourself how you came to St. Louis, why you decided to run for office. I guess it was earlier this year, actually. Um,
2: I covered that race. I actually still have the audio, a couple of your forums that you did.
1: Could... Yeah. So uh, I got elected in in the primary in March of this year, uh, and then ran unopposed in the general in, uh, in April. Um, and, you know, it was my, my first foray into running for political office. Uh, Prior to that, I had worked on a lot of political campaigns in Missouri and in the city of St. Louis. Uh, But this was the first time I was on the other side that I was actually a candidate for
2: office. But where are you from? Oh,
1: so I can't answer the where did you go to high school question. I could. I did go to high school. Um, I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago in a town called Olympia Fields, Illinois, Um, not known for much other than a golf course. Uh, I went to Marion Catholic, which is a school in the south suburbs, a Catholic school there. And then actually while I was in high school, my family relocated to suburban Kansas City And I wound up graduating from uh, Blue Valley West, which is in Overland Park, Kansas.
0: Now, I got to ask this question because I am also a Chicago suburban transplant to St. Louis. When people like Joe or anybody else ask you where you went to high school... What's kind of your reaction to that? Because I have my own reaction to that. My reaction is, I went to a high school with 4,500 people, and it's bigger than any school in Missouri, and I'm awesome. You know, <laughs> but continue.
1: I mean, I always just sort of see it as a socioeconomic question. They're trying to basically figure out what part of town you're from, what kind of family you grew up in. And I, and I don't know, because, frankly, I'm still trying to learn all the high schools in this town. Well, uh, it's
2: not just... I mean, now, just so our listeners know, I'm from Indiana. I grew up in a high school where I only had 161 in my graduating class. So... I mean, the reason I ask it is because since I've been here off and on for 40 years almost, I'm fascinated by St. Louis's obsession with high school because it's not just socioeconomical. It's also they're trying to get a sense of politically where you're coming from, uh, just all sorts of things. Because St. Louis, it's not just public schools, private school, parochial schools. Uh, I mean the whole thing. So I'm sure the fact that you went to a Catholic high school when you mentioned that, I thought, oh well, then he's got an in with some of the. I was Catholic gonna say because
0: after that you went, you did you go to, you went to undergrad at SLU and law school. At SLU? I did.
1: I, I, that's what brought me to St. Louis. I moved here to go to uh, SLU in 2004 and never left. Yeah.
0: And so before you were elected, I think you you mentioned a number of campaigns, but you were also the executive director of the Democratic, uh, the St. Louis Democratic Central Committee.
1: Is that correct? Correct. I was the uh, first and only executive director of the St. Louis Democratic Central Committee. What,
2: What was that about?
1: Um, you know, it was at a time where we were we were we were done with the 08 campaign, which obviously had mobilized a lot of people. There was a ton of energy in St. Louis, uh, you know, to sort of get people involved. We had all these volunteers and all this manpower, and folks wanted to step up and and help the Democratic Party. I was an organizer on that 08 campaign and had a lot of relationships throughout the city, um, and then transition from there into running the mayor's field campaign for his own 09 reelection. And after that, I was starting a law school and the central committee had some big ideas. I, I just said, hey, I'll, I'll help you guys. I'll help fundraise and pay my salary and we can get some things done. What,
0: what I was going to say was, I don't know how many people uh, who listen to this show follow the politics of like committee level politics in St. Louis, but it is probably even more fractious and divided than the board of aldermen. And I mean, how was it de- hurting all of those cats,
1: essentially? <laughs> it was it was certainly <laughs> a learning experience for someone who was pretty idealistic and fresh off the Obama campaign to see politics on that most local level was uh, interesting. I think it has given me insight into, you know, both St. Louis politics and also has helped me at the board because doing that job, I was, you know, I got to meet a lot of the people who are now my colleagues and their various committee people. Like uh,
0: Beth Murphy, for example. Correct. What?
1: Beth Murphy, Carol Howard. Uh, Chris Carter used to be on the Central Committee. I'm trying to think there's probably some others. Well,
0: there probably will be others in the future because a committee man is usually a stepping stone for aldermen. So,
2: So what prompted you then to run for alderman? I mean, St. Louis alderman is kind of an unusual animal of its own, which I'll get into later, but. What prompted you to run for alderman after doing all this political stuff?
1: Right. So actually, I I was sitting around in uh, in the courthouse in St. Louis City. I was a prosecutor for Jennifer Joyce, yes. uh, working in her office. And you know, Phyllis Young is a, a friend of mine, my, my predecessor. And you know, she we had talked last time that she was thinking about you know retiring. She had been in an office twenty nine years, and she called me out of the blue one day and said, you know, I. I think I'm ready to call it quits. So I was sitting in court and started thinking, oh gosh, <laughs> should I do this? I always made fun of my friends who, who quit their jobs when they don't really have another job lined up, and then I found myself in that exact situation. I decided to leave my uh, job in the prosecutor's office and dive headfirst into a, a run for alderman.
0: Now, it was a three-way primary. It was between Samuel Cummings, is that his name? Yes, Samuel Cummings. And Chelsea Chelsea Murta. Yes. and. Um, it was interesting because you raised like fifty or sixty thousand dollars for that race. I'm just curious, as somebody who follows Aldermanic races, did you like buy a talking mailer for every person <laughs> in, in the seventh ward? Like, why would you need to raise that
1: amount of money for an Aldermanic race? You know, having a background in campaigns, yeah. the hardest part about raising money is simply asking for it. Yeah. So that you know, I was able to do that successfully. It was actually more than sixty that I raised, and I didn't spend all of it. Um, but you know, that was something that. I made a decision. If I'm going to run for political office, I'm going to do it right. And one of the things that you got to do to be a strong candidate is be a strong fundraiser. So I came out of the gate and raised a lot of money. So I was able to spend a month and a half of my campaign knocking doors, talking to voters, and not have to worry about you know financing the. Campaign. And, and
0: by the way, that talking mailer um, mention is an homage <laughs> to Russ Carnahan's 2012 campaign. Yeah,
2: but we won't go there. Won't. I,
0: <laughs> I think
1: I spent wisely. There were no talking mailers. Uh, understood. <laughs> so continue. But
2: but then but. A lot of issues that were brought up during that campaign are still major issues within the city now. And and among them is crime, city budget, you know, how it spends its money, how it's going to get money. Now that you're on the board of aldermen, what just so our listeners know, what committees are, are you on and what issues have you had to confront? since you've been on, which is less than a year.
1: Yeah. So I serve on uh, quite a few committees, um, most notably public safety and housing, urban development, and zoning. Uh, and then I'm also on the conventions and tourism committee, the public utilities committee, and the streets committee. Those are a lot of committees. <laughs> it's well, a lot of committees. Yes, yeah, so
2: you touch on a lot of the issues. So. <laughs> yeah,
1: anyway, mo- more, than, more committees than I asked for, but it's been interesting.
2: So what are the biggest challenges right now?
1: I mean, look, the number one issue I hear about is crime crime is absolutely the number one concern and you know I'm fortunate representing Sular downtown Lafayette Square we don't have a tremendous amount of violent crime when we do it's obviously magnified it gets a lot of attention yes. but we have a lot of you know smaller crime we have a lot of car break-ins we got a lot of burglaries um we have robberies because frankly we have a lot of, we have very walkable neighborhoods where there's a lot of people out and about even in the evenings so that's the number one issue I hear about the second most biggest issue I hear about is just simply infrastructure the roads, the crumbling roads, the sidewalks that are in, t- in terrible shape. You know, people are, are, want to see more spending on those kinds of things in the city.
2: Now, looking at it from a broader perspective, uh, in the late seventies, okay, the city had crime, but it wasn't as highlighted. in the In the early eighties, without getting into specifics, there was a lot of marquee murders um, in the in the city in the eighties. Some of them involving mob hits, some of it involving stuff happening. You know just random stuff in people's homes. I had a couple of personal friends who were murdered. So uh, it seemed like the 80s was kind of a hot period. Then things sort of slowed down crime-wise for about 20 years. I mean, not that you didn't have it and stuff, but it wasn't wasn't as all-consuming as it seems to have become again the last year or two. Why do you think that is, and what do you think the city needs to do to confront it?
1: Well, one of the reasons I I think is just simply now with all the various platforms we have, and I'm not going to say it's the media's fault that they're reporting on it more. It's we all have more access to more information. I mean, you can open up Nextdoor, which is a popular app in the Mm -hmm. neighborhoods I represent, and I think everywhere in the city, get on Twitter, get on Facebook anytime, and you can always hear a story about someone's car that got (laughs) broken into or somebody who got, you know, mugged or whatever else. And so it's just sort of all around us all the time. And when in reality, you know, between this year and last year, actually, in, in many of the neighborhoods that I represent, crime's actually down. While the murder rate in the city is rising and there's been a lot more aggravated assaults citywide, in many neighborhoods, you know, cr- certain areas of crime, the indicators like robberies and burglaries and things, crime's actually on the downswing.
0: I, I always ask this when we have Alderman on, but what is kind of your feeling of how uh, Police Chief Sam Dotson is doing in his job and also how um, the mayor is doing as far as crime? Is it, prevention is going because now with local control, he is basically in charge of the police department and crime fighting strategy.
1: Right. You know. Yeah. Given local control, now um, you know there's there's nowhere to pass the buck you know you don't have a board of police commissioners anymore and so ultimately the buck does stop with the mayor and uh, with the police chief and you know I've, I've, I've got a great working relationship with both of them um, I you know I've told Sam and I, and I think he probably knows this by now I think these districts need to be looked at you know pe- people he's he's a lot of criticism from some of the aldermen uh, myself included about the, the configuration of the new districts and how resources are allocated and I think that's something that seriously needs to be revisited uh, in the near future because the districts are too big and you're you're spreading resources too thin.
2: Do they need more police on the streets or does it need to be uh, maybe different techniques? I'm just interested.
1: Probably both. I mean, the one thing Sam has said consistently from the very beginning is he needs more officers. And so I I mean, unfortunately, the the presentation we got or the bills that were presented to us uh, to vote for more police, unfortunately, were funded through funding sources that weren't we didn't even know if we'd have. They were unsure because they were red light cameras. Red light monies. cameras,
0: which you don't have right now. Right.
1: And the other funding sources would have required a bunch of votes on various taxes and fee increases, which I think, frankly, we could have passed uh, had those made it to the ballot. But Sam says he needs more cops. I think we've got to find a way to get him more cops. But what we also have to do is we've got to get serious and figure out we got to pay these guys more. Um, you know, police officers, the day they start in the city of St. Louis, make $9,000 less and their counterpart in St. Louis County, and it's a lot more dangerous job here in the city. And that and that pay disparity continues over time, and that's why we wind up losing so many talented police officers that have made it through the academy, spent a few years in you know some of our more uh, rough and tumbled police districts, gotten a, a wide range of experience, and then they can leave for greener pastures elsewhere.
0: Now, before you were sworn in, there was a vote to establish a citizens review committee or commission of the police department. Now, um, there have been some people who've said it's like a good first step because this is something that's been pushed for years by Alderman Terry Kennedy, for example. But there have been some on both sides of the spectrum who are like, this doesn't have subpoena power. This is not going to be that practically useful to rooting out potential Problems among the police. And now, I know that you didn't have a vote on that, but what is kind of your expectations for that going
1: forward? No, and I didn't have a vote on the civilian oversight board, um, but I did have a vote on the various nominees that we just appointed to the board and mm. sat through most of those uh, committee hearings. Um, you know, I think we got to at least give the thing a chance. I know, I know, there's a big, there's a lot of people unhappy that doesn't have subpoena power, but frankly, you know, most. Most boards and commissions don't have subpoena power. Very few people do have subpoena power. So why don't we give the thing a chance and see if it actually works without it before we immediately say that this thing's useless, before it's even had a chance to get off the ground.
2: The crime problem is connected, as is this other issue we're going to be hitting on in a few minutes, the, st- the state of the city's budget, yeah. where the city gets its money, where it needs to get money. There's whole red light camera thing has affected it. What do you see as the financial um, issues right now, and how is the city going to confront them?
1: Well, we have a a lot of financial issues. And as I mentioned earlier, the infrastructure needs of the city. I mean, that list is growing by the day, and we just – we didn't pass the general obligation bond uh, in the August ballot, which I think is very problematic. I mean, we've got bridges that are literally crumbling, roads that are crumbling. We can't even come up with the matching funds to go get money from the federal government to fix some of these projects because our budgets in such dire straits. And those are things that that I don't have a quick solution because the, the city. I mean, in terms of departments and employees, at least the ones under the control of you know Room Two Hundred, I think they're running pretty thin. You know, but ultimately we've got to find money to do the big things to pay for the infrastructure improvements first and foremost i mean i can't i don't know how you expect people to come downtown and spend money or drive into the city and and park and have a good time here if if the infrastructure is not there to support them and right now i don't think it is
2: and this leads right into
0: the stadium Dun, <laughs> da, da. see that's a much better introduction to this so um what i i've been covering the the melee over this new riverfront stadium for since January. I, I don't think I've been covering it day to day like like David Hunt of the Post-Dispatch. He's done an excellent job of that. But there's there's a lot to unpack here. I think number one is the fact, the psychological impact it would be if, if St. Louis lost an NFL team for the second time because the, the St. Louis Cardinals moved to Phoenix and then to the suburbs of Phoenix. And then just... The mechanics of whether the owners are going to vote for the Rams to move and whether the stadium financing comes into place. We'll get into that in a minute, but I want to, at a very basic level, as somebody who is sponsoring the bill that will provide the city's portion of this $1 billion stadium that's funded both with private and public dollars, why do you think this is necessary right now for St. Louis?
1: I mean, I think this is necessary right now because if we don't take this, this chance if we don't at least pass this bill and and do our part to try to keep our NFL team we're going to lose our football team and we're going to we're going to miss out on a chance to you know basically spend 15% of a billion dollar construction project to revitalize an area of the riverfront that up to this point has seen no private investment and it, there's no indications that if we don't do this that anyone else is going to step up and pay to move the railroad tracks and fix this this blighted area
2: well is there a discussion at all about the financial impact uh, I mean, we've Jason's written about it. Others have too about the financial impact if the Rams go as far as what the city gets from
1: yeah, actually, sales
2: tax and other stuff. Is that figuring into this argument or not?
1: Yes, it most certainly is. And and you know, I will say this: the task force and even the mayor's office up to this point. I don't think they've done a very good job of explaining that to the general public. And so this Thursday, actually, our first committee hearing, I don't know when this airs. It will air before Thursday. Okay, good. (laughs) So this Thursday um, at 9 a.m. in City Hall, the city's budget gurus will be there to explain the financial impact of this project.
0: And I haven't crunched the numbers 100%. I have talked to the statistician that is employed by the mayor And there was an article in the St. Louis Business Journal about how after all is said and done after conservative estimates, it would cost like a million dollars. My question is, and this is kind of maybe a question that maybe won't make the anti-stadium folks happy, but is that really the goal to build a stadium that ends up making money or breaks even? Or is it worth the city and city taxpayers and state taxpayers spending some money so this cultural asset is there? And I know that People think of cultural assets as like concerts and music, but people, everyday people love the Rams. So is it worth it to spend some money here?
1: I I think so. People love the Rams. People love football, you know. if if the project breaks even I think that's a win for us I I basically I I think to spend 15 percent of this project and get a brand new stadium and keep our football team if we can get that done I think that's a win for us and I mean what what all the numbers that you'll see on Thursday and that the statisticians have crunched what they don't factor in is that sense of pride and you know that that's a that's a legitimate argument we want to keep a football team and what does it do to our city if we really lose a second football team in 25 years
2: but even the city puts together a great proposal and Jason's written about this too. Chances are Stan Kroenke wants to be on the West coast. Yeah. And no matter what, I mean, the city arguably could give him something wrapped up in a beautiful bow. And he may say, no, I want to be in California. So what is, I mean, I know they talk about making St. Louis attractive for an expansion team, but has there been any thoughts about how you'd go about that? I mean, 20 years ago, I covered when the Rams was here. We were supposed to get at one point an expansion team. This is before the Rams, right before the San Francisco Stallions. Yes, and ended up going to Jacksonville. And uh I'm just interested in and in how you're going to deal with what may very well be a reality of Cronky leaving, no matter what you do.
1: Right, right. And actually, I touched on this in an interview I did with Jason. I think last week in his story. You know that's that the part of that is that is beyond my control what the what the NFL owners decide to do what a bunch of billionaires decide to do I can't control at this point what what we can control is let's do our part let's pass the bill and show that we've got a viable plan and remember none of this happens without 250 million from the NFL owner and an additional 200 million matching from the NFL so they're in for at least 450 to make this project work and so that doesn't get done unless you've got a commitment from the league that you either have the Rams with Stan Kroenke have the Rams without Stan Cronkie or have some other football team. Here.
0: Now, obviously, funding stadiums through public money is always controversial. It's controversial in every city that it's done. And I guess even in the situation with Kroenke Stadium, which is not actually publicly funded that much, there's still some controversies involved with, you know, still getting tax breaks and whatnot. But I do want to touch on the fact that there was a city ordinance a, a, until a couple of months ago that required a vote before there's any stadium funding. I'm going to play a clip now from St. Louis County Executive Steve Stanger, who has been pretty adamant on the fact that while he's not against the county contributing, it needs to have a public vote attached before any money goes out. Here's what he had to say. And the state of the law in the county is different than the state of the law in the city. Mm-hmm. The state of the law in the county is that we have a charter amendment. Mm-hmm. And that's the law. That's the charter. Um that has to be respected and I think the vote of the people as a principled matter has to be respected and I think that if we're going to move forward it needs to be with a vote of the people. Now I understand you're not the mayor of St. Louis and I know that he's kind of driving this train here but it's pretty clear that St. Louis Mayor Francis Slade did not take that mentality. He often said the fact like we'll just see what the law is and we'll see what the courts do. He didn't take the mentality that you know, even if this law gets struck down, we should still have a vote anyway, because that's the right thing to do. And I think that there's a lot of people within the board of aldermen who still hold to that view. What do you kind of make of that? sort of tension that's there that this isn't being put up to a vote
1: yeah so I guess if you had asked me you know earlier this year should there be a public vote knowing very little about what we would have been voting on I probably would have said yes but then you know a judge I think rightfully so said look you can't have public votes deciding who gets what state incentive packages and you know CDD's and TDD's and all these various taxing instruments those are those are creatures of state law the public in the city, doesn't get to add extra rules for getting those for participating in those programs, and rightfully, I think through the statute out. Now, if the backers that really want a public vote were serious about this effort, they should have introduced this bill, you know, two months ago. And you're referring to validated.
0: you're referring to a another bill from Alderwoman Megan Green, who is I think putting stadium funding in this situation co- co- uh,
1: connected to a public vote. We right. Continue. Right. And at the end, at the end of the day, you know. The people of the Seventh Ward elected me to have to go down to City Hall every day and make hard choices. This is a representative democracy. A bunch of folks voted for me. I have to go down there and call it it as it is, try to make the right call, vote for it or vote against it, but always make a decision and be able to explain that to people. So that's what I'm going to do. But
0: from a practical standpoint, and this is, again, this is more on the task force and Nixon rather than even the mayor or any alderman. It seems if they had not been so hostile to public votes in the city and the county, and they would have said, yeah, let's have public votes in the county and the city. We'll have it for November. We'll make sure we make a great case. And they both passed. It seems like St. Louis would be in a lot stronger position right now. Would you say that's
1: fair to say? I agree. And you know what? I think we could have passed it with a public vote had we sold it the right way. But you know what? I would hope after, after seeing the bond issue, which we desperately need the general obligation bond, you know, not pass with the margins that it needed in August uh, and the lack kind of lackluster sales effort that went into that. Um, you know I, I wonder if we actually could have passed uh, this in the city and the county. i ho- i'm I'm optimistic maybe we could have, but I don't know
2: now, how much discussion is there really with the state? And of course, the governor has his commission and everything, but there's a lot of hostility in the general assembly. And among this reminds me a lot of two thousand and four when you had, Katherine Hannaway is now running for governor. Some say that she lost for Secretary of State because she was hammered on the fact that she had voted at one point for what were seen as incentives or encouragement on the state level for the Cardinals. So my point being that helping team owners seems to be a non-starter among the public in rural Missouri, or at least that's how politicians perceive it. So when you're dealing with a state, I mean, what sort of discussions are being held that are constructive? You
1: know, I'd have to defer to you guys. You're the experts on Jeff City, not me. Um, yeah, I, I hear that, the you know, certain legislators in Jeff City are making threats about, uh, you know, tanking the state's credit rating or, you know, killing this deal. And I have no idea if well, that will actually happen. Well, I'm happens. glad that you mentioned
0: that because – then thank you, Joe. For this is a really
1: good segue. I actually have a clip.
0: From Senator Rob Schaaf of St. Joseph, who has been one of the more persistent state critics of this. And it should be clear here, there's kind of two tracks here. We're dealing with the city funding with the alderman here, but there's also a major state component of funding that is arguably more significant. I mean it's not arguably, there's more state money that's yeah. going yeah, into the city. Twi- almost
1: twice as much money.
0: And the, the the tension there is a little bit different. Like the Board of Aldermen is going to vote on this. Like the individual members are going to have to vote. You're going to need 15 votes. They're going to have to. You, Assuming
1: you, we get the bill out of committee, I would expect there'll be a vote at some yeah. point. Yeah.
0: So in the state, it's looking like there's not going to be a legislative vote or a statewide vote to issue these bonds, and it's caused a lot of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to get pretty upset over this. The most upset may be Senator Schaff. Here's what he had to say last week. If they can figure out a way to get suckers to buy the bonds, they will build that stadium. They will. And they will have played chicken with us. And I'm telling you, I don't care if it hurts our credit rating. I'm not going to have them play chicken and win. I'm going to win at chicken. Because I really don't care about the bond rating as opposed
1: to the pocketbooks of the People of Missouri.
0: Now, again, I know that you're not the expert on the state aspect here. You're more of the city person. But I asked Dave Peacock if the the lawmakers like Schaff block the state payments on the bonds that are issued, whether that's going to be a threat to the stadium. And he signaled that it could be. And he didn't think it would happen because they thought that the credit rating piece would be a disincentive. But as you just heard, for some, it's not a disincentive at all. So, how is that going to affect the deliberations? On the city portion, knowing that some legislators are very upset about the state portion of it.
1: Well, I don't think I'm going to let a you know a legislator from St. Joe really influence the decision that I'm going to make for the the people of the Seventh Ward in the city of St. Louis. Take I, that, St. Joe. Yeah, take that, St. Joe. Um, I do think it's pretty terrifying that you know uh, that Mr. Schaff said that he's willing to you know risk. The credit rating of the state of Missouri, just to prove a political point, I think that's really a, a dangerous proposition.
0: Now, as far as this, let's, let's shift back to the city part, because although that was entertaining, <laughs> that's not really your purview. So, as we're getting, I'm going to generalize it a little bit here, but as far as the city's uh, portion of it, basically the city is going to issue $70 million worth of bonds, which will be paid off, I think, on a 35 year period. The total cost when it's all said and done, I think it's a little over $200 million or so. But that's also taking into account that the money that is like $9 million now in 2052 is probably going to be worth $4 million now. So saying it's $230 or $200 million over a 30 year period, it's not as alarming as it may seem. The thing is, though, a percentage of the game day taxes, I think almost two thirds, is going to go to the owner to recoup for the naming rights which will be bonded and that will be used as collateral as well and this also includes some non-stadium events so for example someone brought this up and i thought it was a funny example if the rolling stones play their 75th anniversary in this new stadium they're 105 years old which would be quite a sight (laughs) all the a lot of the may not
2: look much (laughs) different than some of them do now
0: (laughs) A lot of the taxes for that would go to Kroenke or the NFL owners. Is that going to be a sticking point in this discussion that even the non-NFL events are going to go to pay for this stadium or go to pay the NFL owner?
1: Well, that is true. A a, a portion of the taxes from this uh, new facility, even for non-NFL events, would go to the team ownership. Um, and the, the sales tax, I believe half of that would go towards a team ownership and certain other amusement taxes, 100% of that would go towards a team. Doesn't include MLS. If we were able to get a soccer team, that wouldn't be included in the deal. And ultimately, I look at it like this. If we don't If we aren't able to build a stadium and keep our football team, we won't have this facility for the Rolling Stones to play their concert, their 75th anniversary concert. And if we do build it, we'll keep a portion of the tax.
2: Well, you know, one of the things that gets me in all this is because, like, okay, about the Bonds, it's like over 30 years or 35 or whatever. Okay, you're looking at the current stadium said I covered when they originally were building that and getting the the team at that point it was considered state of the art it was going to be you know around a while this and that here we are 20 years later and they're talking about how obsolete it is how you know it's not big enough on this or it's not configured right on that so when you're talking about financing a new one for 30 years isn't it more likely that it's going to be the same situation except maybe in 10 or 15 years and then and then what do you do
1: I don't know. That is the big question, you know, and that's something I think the whole country has to look at at some point is, should we be publicly financing stadiums at all down the road? I mean, we're going to build, hopefully we can get this one built, but you're exactly right. Is it going to be 15 or 25 years before the Rams need another stadium? Uh, What about the Cardinals? They've now been in their stadium almost 10 years. When are they going to want a new stadium, uh, a Bush Stadium three? So at some point, yeah, we do have to step back, I think, as a country and say. Are we going to keep using tax-exempt bonds, government bonds, for these projects?
0: So before we even get to a vote where you need 15, you have to get through the Ways and Means Committee, which starts on Thursday. And as I explained I think a couple of times now, um, it's not really the friendliest committee that this could be sent to. You have maybe three probable yes votes and then like five either undecided or no votes, including uh, Alderman Chris Carter. I'm going to play a clip from him. And then I'll get to my next question.
1: No one wants to see the Rams leave. I mean, I'm a fan. But at what cost is it too much? And I I just think that right now, if we would have went to the people, I would have supported either way. We haven't. We are forcing this down the people's throats.
0: So in addition to Carter, you have also Antonio French, the alderman who has threatened to filibuster this at every turn if there's not a comprehensive crime plan. You have Sam Moore, who is a co-sponsor of Megan Green's bill, and I've heard him in committee. He's not a huge fan of this idea. You have Scott Ogilvie, who is also on Twitter, not a very huge fan of this. And you also have Terry Kennedy, who I don't think has said anything, but I'm not really putting him as a yes vote because I think to him, crime and crime fighting is more important than stadium building. In my calculation, you need at least two of those people to either... Vote for it, or three of those people to not vote, or you need Lewis Reed to come in in an event of a tie. So with all this machination, explain for the, the, the listener, how are you going to get this through
1: committee exactly? It's not going to be easy. Um, and that's why we're going to you know, spend a lot of time trying to explain this deal to people and make them comfortable with the numbers uh, and, and hopefully get a lot of input from the public, uh, hopefully more pro <laughs> than con uh, in support of the deal. But no, I, I, I certainly understand the political realities we're facing in the Ways and Means Committee and, and many others do as well. This is not going to be an easy vote to get out of committee.
0: Now, once if it gets out of committee, it's a big if. Um, and then who knows, maybe you could use the same procedure, the minimum wage people use to get out of committee, which would be interesting because I know you were opposed to the minimum wage bill and I'm sure you weren't very happy when it was brought up to the floor, but that could be the only way to get this out of committee. Uh, how do you get 15 votes for that? Because we've heard a lot of people say like they're not in favor of stadium funding, but you may have some people like you who are interested in the economic development component. What is kind of your prognosis if it actually gets out of committee?
1: If we get the bill out of committee, I think we can get to the 15 votes on the floor. I'm, I'm confident in that. Uh, but, but first, we've got to get the thing out of the Ways and Means Committee, which is not going to be easy. It's probably going to be one of the more watched publicly
0: committees that we're going to see in quite some time. Like The minimum wage, as I mentioned before, had a lot of public input. But this is a story that has just everyday people paying attention on both sides. You have some very ardent Rams fans who are going to these public meetings. will probably be there on Thursday who are very passionate about getting the stadium built. And then you have a lot of people who are on the complete opposite side of the spectrum who are very passionate about not spending money for this. right? So what are you kind of expecting as far as the debate goes? We talked about the vote counting, but what are you thinking the debate is gonna be?
1: Oh, I think we're gonna have a lively room. We're gonna have, obviously, the Rams fans will be there. They showed up in droves for the uh, NFL's public hearing a couple of weeks ago. You're gonna have a lot of labor. A lot of folks from the building trades are going to be at these hearings because this is a big, big deal from them. And this project has an opportunity to put a lot of people back to work.
2: Politically, uh, how influential would the building trades be in either getting it, helping to get it through Ways and Means, or, I mean, they obviously would probably be influential in getting it through on a floor vote. Uh, I mean, how big of a behind-the-scenes role are they playing right now?
1: you know the building trades are playing a pretty big role in this project this is their number this and geospatial are their number one and two priorities um and so i mean i don't know if you you don't go to as many uh, board of alderman meetings anymore jason's there a lot the building trades have been there the last few weeks talking to members And they're going to continue doing so. Well, maybe Joe could come back and relive her her bygone (laughs) era. You could (laughs) be my special guest.
0: (laughs) Right. I'm always Donna Behringer's special guest because I am a 16th Ward resident. But thank you very much for coming on the show. We're looking forward to this stadium debate. And I'm sure a lot of people in the St. Louis region and around the country will be following this very closely. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. I'm on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Joe is on Twitter at, at J
2: Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And we can
0: follow you on Twitter at J Coder. Until next week, so long.
2: Anyway, this cake is great. It's so delicious and